Hey, podcast family, if you listen to our immediate prior podcast right before this one, you know that we covered the last five recently added items to the SMFM Choosing Wisely document, which questions some of the things done in obstetrical practice. So I figured, you know what, we should go back and kind of highlight, at least cover as a reminder, some of the other don'ts, in other words, don't do these things in obstetrical care. Well, should we order inherited thrombophilia evaluation for history of pregnancy loss or fetal growth restriction? Or what about the issue of screening for fetal growth restriction with Doppler blood flow? Is that a good idea? Well, we're going to answer these questions and more as we cover the SMFM Choosing Wisely updated reviewed list. Again, remember our immediately past podcast covered the last five items, but we're going to do rapid fire. Don't do these for obstetrical practice now. Hi, I'm Caroline. Hi, I'm Jacob. And, and we, we are, are pre-med students at Texas A&M University. University. This, this is, is Clinical Pearls. Topping off the list is don't do inherited thrombophilia evaluation for women with a history of pregnancy loss, fetal growth restriction, preeclampsia, or clinical evidence of abruption. Scientific data supporting a causal association between either methyl tetrahydrofolic reductase polymorphism or other common inherited thrombophilias and adverse pregnancy outcomes like recurrent pregnancy loss or severe preeclampsia or fetal growth restriction just aren't there. Specific testing for antiphospholipid antibodies when they're clinically indicated should be limited to lupus anticoagulant anti-cardiolipin antibodies, and beta-2 glycoprotein antibodies. Remember that the testing for thrombophilia should only be done if the patient develops a deep venous thrombosis or pulmonary embolus event, not an adverse pregnancy outcome. Also, when checking for cell-free DNA, remember to not make irreversible decisions based on the results of the cell-free DNA screening test alone. False positive and false negative results can occur with cell-free DNA screening. Any positive cell-free DNA screening result should be confirmed with invasive diagnostic testing prior to termination of a pregnancy. Now, if cell-free DNA screening is performed, adequate pre-test counseling should be provided to explain the benefits and limitations. I've had people call and ask for a consult asking about screening for fetal growth restriction based on Doppler blood flow studies. What? Don't do that. Studies that have attempted to screen pregnancies for the subsequent occurrence of fetal growth restriction have provided inconsistent results. Furthermore, no standards have been established for the optimal definition of an abnormal test, the best gestational age for the performance of these tests, or the technique for its performance. Now, remember, we're talking about screening for fetal growth restriction. We're not saying that Doppler blood flow studies aren't used at all, or just the opposite. When the diagnosis of fetal growth restriction is suspected or made, then the use of antenatal fetal surveillance, including umbilical artery Doppler, of course, is known to be beneficial. Next on our list of don't do this for OB care includes the use of progesterone for preterm birth prevention in uncomplicated multifetal gestation. The use of progestins have not been shown to reduce the incidence of preterm birth in women with uncomplicated multifetal gestation. 
Next, let's talk about routine cervical screening using cervical length assessment in women before 16 weeks of age or beyond 24 weeks of gestation. Remember, the perfect time to do cervical length screening as a prediction for preterm birth risk is between 16 weeks and 24 weeks. The predictive ability of cervical length measurement prior to 16 weeks or after 24 weeks is just kind of unknown as screening. Now remember, we're talking about doing this as a screening algorithm. If a patient presents with threatened preterm labor, then of course cervical length can be done from 24 weeks of gestation all the way up to really about 35 weeks as part of the FFN algorithm. But this last don't do has to do with routine cervical length screening for preterm birth. Remember, best time is between 16 weeks and 24 weeks for screening. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know, when I'm on call in labor and delivery, sometimes I'll see some other physician's uh, prenatal record as I review it as I'm admitting somebody. This is no slide against any particular provider, or I just want to make that very clear. But I'll see that they write in a specific lab as part of their prenatal labs, and they'll get screening CMV or screening toxoserologies. Why? Don't do that. <laughs> Don't perform maternal serological studies for CMB and Toxo as part of a routine prenatal lab study. There's a specific time to look for those, and it's not even serum testing. If you're really worried about those, and you should really do amniotic fluid testing. Routine serological screening of pregnant women for CMV and Toxo is not recommended by SMFM due to poor predictive value of these tests and the potential for harm due to false positive tests. Serological screening during pregnancy for both diseases should be reserved for situations in which there is a clinical or ultrasound suspicion of active maternal or fetal infection. The next one is my personal pet peeve. Let's say I order a biophysical profile, obviously a patient in the third trimester, when I'm on call at the hospital. And the technician comes up and says, well, uh, I've gotten a kind of a confusing picture. So my first question, of course, is, well, what happened? And back in my head, I go, uh-oh. But what happens is this tech goes, well, everything looks great, but her AFI was three, but her largest pocket is six. What? Well, that doesn't make any sense. First of all, don't do both AFI and largest pocket. If you're doing amniotic fluid assessment or specifically doing fetal surveillance in the third trimester, use the largest pocket. Amniotic fluid indexes really should be reserved more for times of biometrics and rate of growth. But if you're really trying to assess for oligohydramnios or poly for that matter, use the single deepest pocket. Amniotic fluid volume can be measured using either AFI or the deepest vertical pocket. Diagnosis of oligo based on AFI, usually defined as an AFI less than 5 centimeters, has been found to lead to a greater number of obstetric interventions without a significant benefit in improving perinatal outcomes. And this is when it's compared to the single deepest pocket of less than 2 centimeters for the diagnosis of oligo. 
All right, look, here's another thing that kind of really ticks me off, but I do it anyway because that's what they ask, even though there's no data for it. We often get referrals to do cervical length assessments in patients that already have a cerclage in place. Why are we doing a cervical length measurement in those patients? Although progressive cervical shortening after cerclage increases the risk of preterm birth, neither overall cervical length nor the length below the stitch correlates well with outcome. More importantly, there are currently no additional treatment options for a short cervix after cerclage has been placed. Now, although there may be theoretical psychological benefits to the patient and the provider to visualize the stitch, there's insufficient data to suggest a clinical benefit of routine post-cerclage cervical length measurements. So again, if the patient already has a cerclage in place, getting a cervical length assessment probably is not going to add much to the therapeutic regimen. Boy, I sound kind of opinionated, don't I? I mean, I don't mean to. It's just that it's weird what we do when there's not a lot of data. And anytime you look for a test, it increases the risk, of course, of both patient anxiety and of doing an intervention that's probably just not helpful or based on the evidence. So again, I don't mean to sound opinionated or kind of irritated, but this is real world, right? This is what happens. Just happened about two weeks ago. Patient came in with a cervical cerclage and just came in just for a routine cervical length assessment. She was doing fine. I wasn't sure what to do with that, and I did what was asked. And of course, the cervical length was okay. But even if it wasn't, what else would we do in that setting? Placement of a secondary stitch is not proven to be beneficial. Anyway, just a little rant, just for transparency. Sorry, didn't mean to sound opinionated. And we're going to wrap this up with the Monday, Thursday, Friday mutation. Is that still called that? That's what I trained with, the MTHFR mutation. You probably learned that, or you may have learned that, as a test for adverse pregnancy outcome or thrombophilia. Well, we shouldn't do that either. MTHFR is responsible for the conversion of 5,10-methylethylene-tetrahydrofolate to 5-methyltetrahydrofolate genetic variant C677T and A1286C have been associated with a mild decrease in enzymatic activity, which in the setting of reduced folate levels has been found to be a risk factor for hyperhomocysteinemia. Now, although hyperhomocysteinemia is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease and venous thrombosis, its cause is multifactorial and independent of the MTHFR genotype, even in homozygous individuals. Now, here it is. Despite earlier, mostly case-controlled studies that found an association between this genotype and adverse outcomes, recent studies of more robust design have not replicated those findings. So, due to the lack of evidence associating the MTHFR genotype independently with thrombosis, recurrent pregnancy loss, or other adverse pregnancy outcome, MTHFR genotyping should not be ordered as part of the workup for thrombophilia or fetal growth restriction. Well, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the SMFM Choosing Wisely list of don't do in terms of OB care. We're thankful for you. Thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.